Hebrews 9 and 10. Again, because we are doing a topical study, we are dropping into a book that we're not, we don't have our boundaries on, right? And I just want to remind you that <clears throat> the focus of your attentions when you are dropping into a book like this for a topical study is to observe it from the perspective or the prism of the subject that you're studying. I found that interesting because we did do Hebrews before, <clears throat> and this time I think when I went in there specifically with covenant in mind, I saw things that I really did not focus on when I was doing it as a Hebrews study. Hebrews, we were looking at it, does anybody remember? Jesus is better, and he's our, our great high priest. And so per, chapter by chapter, each time we look to see how was he better. He was better in this way and this way and this way, right? But this time we went into 9 and 10, and we're looking to see a comparison, right? What is our comparison that we're looking at here? The old and new covenant. Now, in to do that, because she had, fortunately, what she did allow us to do was to drop in and actually do as much of an observation worksheet as we could. But you really had an unfair advantage. Did any of you struggle with it a little bit? Did anybody have any troubles with it? <clears throat> because you're going in cold turkey. If you've never done Hebrews before, um, you're trusting that she's pointing you in the right direction. But here's what I can assure you of. She was pointing you to look at the things that pertain to our subject matter of covenant. And so she said, look at these words, mark these things, make a list on. And did you notice she gave you a list of markings, but then only asked you to do like three studies, except for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which are always key and you should always make your list on. So she had you do the obvious and then she only picked three of those words. So in doing that, <clears throat> what we can know then is that we are looking to make a contrast and a comparison. <clears throat> when you did your homework, I'm going to clear up here in a minute. I know I will. I'm sorry. I hate to be coughing and hacking into the microphone. All right. Let me look for my my homework. I'm in the wrong chapter, that's why. <clears throat> All right, here is, okay, that's the old one. All right, pull out all of your list making and observations that were made. One of the things she told you to do was <coughs> to mark priest, holy place in heaven, and make a list. She wanted you to make a list on God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit. <coughs> and then she also asked you to mark every reference, reference of time. Now, that was interesting. Look at this list on time references in these, just these two chapters, a bunch. Tell me what did you see by just marking your references of time? What popped out at you as you looked at these references? 
There you go. That there seemed to be a, something that was required to happen over and over in the old, but in the new there was something that happened just one time, and then it was finished. What does that tell you then if you only take that one point and consider the difference between the old and the new of the two covenants? What does that tell you? And so, right, and so when, you, when you're comparing those two sacrifices, because that was another word that came up, sacrifice and blood, when you were looking at those things, what was the comparison between the two types of sacrifices in those two different systems? What was the comparison? blood of Jesus. Okay. And if you had to evaluate that, then what is your conclusion? Jesus is better. Exactly. Okay. So from looking just at the one list of references of time, having made that list, you know, sometimes we wonder in our minds, I'm sure you all do, why am I doing this, right? This seems like a waste of time. But the point to a lot of these disciplines that you do inductively are to help bring to your attention some things that are actually very obvious. And once you write them on paper and they just all of a sudden they become even more obvious. And if they become that obvious, what does that tell you about those types of subjects that come up or those kinds of comparisons? What does that tell you about these chapters that we've looked at? There you go. Exactly, Janice. See, it wasn't a trick question. It's like, it's like, here's your sign, <laughs> right? Okay, so if that's true, then here, here's what happened. Once you look at those references of time, and it becomes obvious that there's lots of contrasts and comparisons going on, then one of the things that you really should have done, and she did not ask of you, but you should have noticed was looking for contrasts and comparisons would have been a very good um, exercise of your time. And probably just by natural effect, you did it. You can't help not make those comparisons because they're so obvious once you start list making that they just kind of pop out at you, right? All right, so here's what we are going to do. We want to go through, I'm going to take you through Hebrews 9 and 10. What we want to do is kind of get the author's flow of thought. Because we are dropping into a book that we haven't been in and we haven't really set the full context on it, I want to help you to just see the flow of thought. And we're going to try to see this flow of thought specifically from the subject of covenant. So I want to start in Hebrews 9. And in Hebrews 9, <clears throat> let's see, find my observation worksheet so I can follow along with it. How did you see Hebrews 9 on the whole? When you finished all of your markings, doing all of your, your list, uh, list making, or even just marking your key words, what did you see? Good morning. What did you see were, was the key or the most important subject that was going on in this book? In this chapter, I should say. <coughs> okay, say it again. 
Okay. Okay, so there was some contrast going on between two different tabernacles and two different kinds of blood, right? And the tabernacle and the blood are related to what subject in, in this chapter? The first covenant versus the second covenant, exactly. So if you wanted to, Hebrews 9 could actually be, be titled a new covenant, right? And so we're going to start there, a new covenant, as our title, okay, for this chapter. I did that backwards. You guys can figure me out, right? So let's take a look. Where do you see the first uh, segment in chapter 9? It starts in verse 1, and where do you see that it ends? And what word clues you to the fact that it's now making a contrast? But, very good. Oh, you guys are getting really good at this. Okay, the but in verse 11 tells you that all of a sudden he's finished a thought in the beginning and he's stopping me saying, but I want you to compare it to something else. And there's a natural break there. So when you look at this, we're going to look at verses 1 to 10 though. And we're going to say in 1 to 10, what, if you had to, to draw it all together, what do you see going on in there? Tell me some things that you observed there. It is. It's talking about this tabernacle and all of its different regulations. In fact, how often is that word tabernacle actually brought up? It starts out in the very opening, very first verse. Actually, in the first verse, it says sanctuary, right? But that's a synonym for the tabernacle, correct? Everybody understood that. And you see that tabernacle is heavily used in verses 2 and 3, but then it's brought up again over and over. Where else do you see that word? Six and eight. And, and in, a, in a kind of a backwards way, it's a symbol. And so the word it, it's a symbol. It what? It the tabernacle, right? So you, again, you see it again in other verses. So you can see that it, it, it opens with about the subject of the tabernacle and ends with the subject of the tabernacle. So if you had to title verses 1 to 10, what would you, how would you title it? What was the most significant um, statement about the tabernacle and how it's compared to what follows it starting in verse 11. What is the significant difference between those two tabernacles? Okay, say it again. There you go. It's, a, it's made by human hands. And what does it tell us, therefore, that its location is? On earth. So we see that it's an earthly, the earthly, right? tabernacle or you can use that word sanctuary because it actually says that in verse one correct so it's going to be a comparison the new and then when we get down to 11 we're going to make that contrast with what follows it which is a different kind of tabernacle now let's talk about the differences then in verses um uh, 1 to 10 what do we see in there we see how was it described to us I think this is really cool He is. And did you notice he uses the word tabernacle as opposed to, what is there another word that we often relate this to? The temple. So 
interesting. We, if you just in your little mind, real quickly, do a timeline, right? Where are we in a time? Yeah, a little tiny timeline, a minute one, because that's all I can grasp. So, in my little mind, where is your little ti- your little timeline? Where are we on the timeline when the books of he- the book of Hebrews is written? Is it a tabernacle or is it a temple? He's in the time of the temple, and for those of you who recall, yes, the temple is still is still up and functioning. So it's before 70 AD, right? And yet, is he talking about the temple? So he actually reverts all the way back to his tabernacle days. Now, does he have firsthand experience of a tabernacle? So what is he relying on? The the knowledge that's been passed down through his, his you know, generations of teaching. So, and in that, then he goes through and he, he begins to explain each of the quali- qualities or parts, right, the aspects of this tabernacle. One of the things that he does is he, he distinguishes between the compartments. What does he talk about? What's in there that you see? And how, and how significant is it? Okay, go ahead. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Just the priest. Now, what does that tell you then about the tabernacle and what he's describing there? Yeah, there seems to be a separation from the people, even the general priesthood, from what takes place in the inner sanctuary, what they call the Holy of Holies, right? Who gets to enter into the Holy of Holies? Only the high priest. Now, that's kind of an interesting subject that gets brought up here then. Do we see the priesthood being mentioned on a regular basis then through chapter 9 and 10? We do, don't we? And it seems like, again, there's a contrast that's going to go on that's going to, teach, that's going to be um, emphasized between an earthly priest versus Jesus, our great high priest. All right. Yes, you can. Uh-oh. Okay, Terry, go for it. <laughs> um, okay, so when I was looking at the descriptions, I always got the golden altar region. There's a line dividing it. Okay. It does not it doesn't match what is said in the scriptures and it talks about the second layer. Okay. So I I always thought that was part of the holy place. Mm-hmm. But it says no, it's part of the um, Holy of Holies. Okay. Very cool. Okay, so Hebrews students, for those of you who have done this before, can you help her to understand why the phrasing of of where the location of the altar of incense is located? Why does it say it in the manner that it does? Let me let me read it real quick. <clears throat> Having a golden altar of incense. Okay, say behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which the golden uh, jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which budded in the tables of the covenant. So why does it say that the inner sanctuary of the Holy of Holies has an altar of incense? That's 
close and it's part of it. So yes, think about the purpose or the function of the altar of incense. What did the priests do with the altar of incense? How, how was it used functionally? Okay, the purpose was the idea that when you study it, it's about the intercession that, that it symbolically represents, right? Wow, we're using that word symbolic a lot, aren't we? Have you noticed that? So kind of put that in the back of your mind too as we move through this. So you've got an altar of incense. Where do we know that the altar of incense is? It's Okay, let's do a drawing. Okay, let's see if I can do, I'm sorry, say it again. Okay, let's see if we can pull that out. Oops, I don't have mine in my book. Okay, well, I don't have mine. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, I wasn't planning on this, but we'll do it. Not a problem. You know, that's the whole thing about this. It's so important. We out here, we have, this is the outer court. We have the, um, the, alt, the bronze altar, right? Here we have the, the uh, bronze laver. This is for the this is for the burning of the of the sacrifice. This is for the washing of the of the priests. Then we have inside here we have another place, and it's divided, right? How do they get in here? What, and what would that door also be called? A veil. And then in order to get in here, what's separating these two? Another veil. Okay. So there's your. That helps you with your first understanding. They enter in between a veil and then here. But who enters into this veil? Only the high priest. Now, in this room here, we remember there's, there's tables of showbread and there's the uh, candle of the menorah, basically, right? And then in front of the tent, there was what? An altar of incense. The purpose of the altar of incense was... Once the, the priest came in and he did his work and he scooped his things. Now, this is only the high priest. But when he goes in, what did he do first? What was the first thing he took in? The coals from the altar of incense. Why? Do you guys remember going to the church up here? Um, what is the name of Life Austin, we went to Life Austin's and we saw the tabernacle. I don't know about you, but that was a really profound insight for me to do that. Because what we did is we went in, we, we lit our candles, and then we carried them in. We got to actually go in to the, the, the Holy of Holies, which no one would get to do that but the high priest in the days that the, the temple was still functioning. And the very first thing he did was enter into that Holy of Holies with the with the coals, the burning incenses of the, the um, altar of incense, and he would take them in there. Why? It was, okay, it was pleasing to God. 
It did. And what would happen when he entered in with this flame, this flaming pan? It would fill the room. What was that symbolically? Well, not God, because God is dwelling upon the altar itself, upon the, the mercy seat. He's, he dwells between the two cherubim, correct? But when you bring in the, the coals of the sacrificed, there you go. The sacrifice itself is now having been a whole burnt offering, now the offering, the coals of that offering are brought in, and what happens is the smoke then of that offering fills that room, and it becomes a intercessor, a buffer. A buffer is a good word. Buffer. You definitely would want a buffer between you and God if you were going to go into the Holy of Holies, would you not? In the, the days of that system. So <coughs> Let, let's reread the way he makes the statements, just so you clarify in your mind. He says, Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense. In other words, the golden altar of incense, although it sits on the outside, its ministry is for the inside. And so it belong, the ministry of this altar of incense belongs to the inner sanctuary. Once the coals of that sacrifice that was made is when that it has become a coal burnt offering he he he's ceremonially washed and clean and he comes in he collects the, those ashes from that sacrifice and he enters into the inner sanctuary and the the uh, smoke and the the um the burning of it fills the inner sanctuary as as a intercessor that's why this is called an intercessor and so how is jesus referred to us he is our intercessor, right? And so the, the uh, priest would come in, he, the great high priest would come in, he would put the coals in, then he would go out, and then he would do the next step, which was to collect the blood. Then he would come back in again, and the next time he would do what with the, with the altar? Then he would sprinkle the altar. And, it, and it, it's a beautiful process to write. But you're right, Terry, to bring up the fact that this is kind of complicated. Uh, if you have not studied uh, Hebrews fully and gone to all those cross-references, which you would have done, we're not in this study right now to learn all these details. And yet the problem is, is when the questions come up, you get confused, and it's almost like you get stuck. And you can't move on to learning this stuff about the new covenant until you resolve the problem. Why did it say that that altar of incense is on the, out, on the inside when it's actually on the outside? You know that from studying everywhere else in Scripture, right? Well, now you know. It's the phrasing. Why do you think he phrased it that way? Do you think this writer has firsthand experience with any of this? Yeah. He sure did. As he's explaining this tabernacle, did he have firsthand experience with this tabernacle? No. He has experience with the temple. And how has the temple changed since the days of the tabernacle? Are there, have there been any 
changes in it at all. And was he actually a, himself a priest who had entered into there? We don't know, do we? So it sounds like he is speaking from his experience of, of being taught, but maybe not pers personal firsthand experience. So as he explains it, he's explaining it from the principle of application of its purpose. Because one of the things that he's going to say is he says in the opening, he describes the first covenant having what attached or affixed with it in verse 1. Regulations of divine worship. So then he goes on to explain what some of those regulations of divine worship in, in, uh, engage. What happens when you go into that temple? How do you do what? And what is, what is the purpose of it? He doesn't go into details about it, however, which is really interesting because he says, um, <clears throat> basically, I think maybe it was here, maybe it wasn't, but that he said he doesn't want to go into it any further here because, you know, of time, basically. I'm say it again. Okay. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. <laughs> and you're like, what? Don't do that to me. I'm a new person at girl. I need a New Testament girl. I need to know, um, you know, more about this, the details on this because I'm stuck. Well, that kind of explains it, I think. It is, he's explaining it from his perspective of training and knowledge, whatever that base level is. And he's explaining to you that his understanding is this altar of incense pertains to the things that go on within the inner veil. Okay? <clears throat> All right. And we know that because we know that's how it's actually designed and set up, correct? Okay, so now we have that little beautiful illustration I got there. <laughs> that beautiful little chart. <clears throat> Okay, let's move into the next sec section. We've kind of looked at the first one. He just simply introduces the concept that he doesn't want to go into further detail about because now he wants to move into something about what? <clears throat> Starting in verse 11, how far does, how many verses in chapter 11 after, or chapter, sorry, chapter 9, starting in verse 11, from that point on, how much of the time is spent on the contrast with something different or something new? <clears throat> Does he end up going, going back and focusing like he did in verses 1 to 10 on just the old? No, he doesn't. Everywhere else that the old is mentioned, it's mentioned as a contrast or a comparison, correct? <clears throat> okay, so we're going to start in verse 11. <clears throat> And what do we see he introduces next? What's his next conversation then? What's the but do for us? Okay, and because we have Christ as a high priest, how does he compare that? What are some of his description, uh, descriptive words in there? Okay, so first of all, he's going to make a contrast between the earthly tabernacle and a different one, and he's saying it's a more perfect tabernacle. He actually even calls it a greater tabernacle, correct? And <clears throat> concerning that, he also compares Christ to the earthly um, temple or tabernacle, its priesthood, correct? And he compares the old priesthood to the new priesthood, and what does he say about Jesus in the new priesthood? Yeah, isn't that interesting? 
<clears throat> he almost makes it sound like it's something better, doesn't he? Almost. <laughs> because it's, all, because it's, it's good things to come. In other words, the old was not bad, but something that's coming ahead through Christ is better, right? It's something good that's to come. And he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Then how is it described? Aha, so what does that tell us? Not made with human hands, and what else does it say? Ah, there's a huge contrast. The first one was, in verse 1, an earthly sanctuary, but this one is not of this creation. So how would you title these verses in 11 to 14? What is the contrast? The earthly tabernacle and what? A greater tabernacle or anything along those lines however you have you know have in your mind that states or declares to you that this is a sanctuary a tabernacle that's greater that's better and that it's not of the earth and that it's of heaven correct a more perfect tabernacle not made with hands now he says after he makes that statement and makes it clear to you that he's now talking about a different thing, not the earthly, but the heavenly tabernacle, then what does he tell you about that, the ministry of that tabernacle? He told you in the first one that it had altars, it had uh, sacrifices that were brought to it, that there was, um, that it had a table of showbread, it had a, the incense of the, uh, the ark of the incense, right, the, the the altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, sorry. Um, it even described things like the, the uh, cherubim, correct? But now when he goes into the next one about the heavenly one, what does he emphasize in verses 12 to 14? Isn't that interesting? He, he, he doesn't talk about the articles that are present, but rather, he talks about the ministry of the priest being distinctively different. So if you look at that, what you see is that he says concerning the old one, what does he compare it to? The high priest on the earth is what? What does he do in those verses? What is his em emphasis again, Susan? Was on what subject? The blood. So remember she asked you to mark the keyword blood. And to make a list of, of the things that mentally as you went through to see how, how the blood uh, uh, presents itself in the subject of covenant. How do, what do we know about blood when it comes to covenant? Pardon? That's right. Anytime, what have we said about covenants, even like the Davidic covenant, when it was made, even though it was an exchanging of clothing and articles, what, did we, what have we concluded about the mental understanding about shedding of blood in covenants? Okay, in this context, it tells us that it's for the purification of sin. But Sarah, on the subject of covenant, how, what does blood play in the subject of making a covenant? Is it, is it always applicable even if it doesn't mention it in the text? Yes. When, do you remember when David and Jonathan made their covenant with one another? How did they view their, co their covenant with each other? My life for your life. And, it, and the implication was there, and if I don't keep it, what will God do? Might take my life. What does that give you an understanding in their mind about? What do they understand about covenant then? 
that it still it's symbolically whether it was whether a animal was killed or not they understand that it is a unto life or an unto death relationship that God even will hold you accountable in your life on it that if you break that covenant God has rights um and even a responsibility to honor the one who kept covenant and to punish in some way the one that did not. David and Jonathan, Jonathan said uh, about David, whom he loved, may God bring your enemies against you if you break covenant. And he asked him to bless his ancestries, those descendants that came after him, right? So even though in that particular covenant, I use that one as an example because we did not see anywhere in their covenant making the shedding of blood, did we? And yet, did they have the understanding that the shedding of blood was understood? So the concept is always there when it comes to covenant. So again, here we are in this new covenant in the, in the book of Hebrews, which we're dropping into, we're trying to make some relationships. So we don't want to forget what we've learned about covenant so far. We want to bring that with us. And so what we understand is anytime covenant is made, the concept of shedding of blood is always there. Now, in the case of the new covenant, are we seeing, at, uh, when you did your homework, was there actually a shedding of blood in the new covenant, in the cutting of the new covenant? So, yes, absolutely. And so, again, now you're, you're just taking your qualities and the qualifiers that you now know about what a covenant is, and you're saying shedding of blood is one of the qualifiers. It's one of the quantities or, or qualities of a covenant. And here we see the very first thing that's brought up when he makes the comparison between the old. Did he ever, he, he didn't mention blood in the first covenant as well, did he not? In the verse First verses, 1 to 10. Did you mark it? Only one time, but it, it is there, right? When that high priest enters here into the inner holy of holies, what did he enter with? What kind of blood? Yeah, he, he did not enter without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Now, when you flip over to verse 12, what is that blood that he takes in with him? The blood of animals, the blood of goats and calves. And it says, but the comparison then again is made. The word but, if you marked it, hopefully you did. But in this new covenant, what do we see? How did Jesus enter into the, the greater tabernacle? With his own blood. Okay, so this... To, for you and I, this is, this, these should be things that go ding, 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 ding because of the, our subject matter of covenant. Okay, okay, we're going to, that's a, that's a switch in, um, it's a switch in emphasis of, of what he's teaching in that moment right there, he makes a switch to the idea of a covenant meaning a will. Okay, so you have to make the switch and understand that. What he's saying there is he's talking about a will and when do you receive the benefactor's uh, possessions and when does that will come in effect for you? When do you get the blessings of your mom and your dad's will that they bequeath to you? When do you, get, when do you receive that? 
I know, but we're, you're talking two different subjects and two different qualities about a covenant. There's a covenant that's made and it's in effect while you're living, but in this case, it's talking about the benefactor of it. Once you receive the benefactory of what was promised to you, it only comes to you once the one is dead, then it is bequeathed to you. That's the point that's being made in that particular verse. So hold on a second. We'll get down to that one. But you have to be able to divide the different concepts about a covenant. There's the concept of being in a covenant, and obviously you're... you're um, responsible in that covenant but then he's going to make a switch and he's going to switch and talk about what a will does for you and when does it come into effect and so he wants to make a different point okay so you could actually it's a little confusing it really is but again context of what's being said there it would it it really requires that you make the switch the reason you're confused is you wouldn't make the switch but once you get confused, you should say, why am I confused? I know what a covenant is, and I know that it's in effect, and when it's in effect, I'm responsible, right? But what is the subject matter in that conversation when you get into those verses down in 12? Uh, for where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is only valid when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood, for when every commandment had been spoken to Moses by the people and to the law, he took the blood, and it talks about him sprinkling that. Um, wait a second. Okay, because he's talking, as you get to the end of it, he's talking about he is going to, um, Christ also having been offered once to bear sins of many will appear a second time for salvation with reference to sin to those who eagerly await. He is speaking about the, the inheritance that you get from that particular covenant that you enter in with Jesus Christ, which is what? What is the eternal blessing of the covenant, the new covenant for you and I? What do we inherit by entering into that covenant with him? Eternal life. And when did we have that made available to us? Before Jesus' death or after? After. Because, okay. It is still the subject matter of covenant, but, but it's a specific point. He's making a specific point in, this, in that particular statement, and that is that Jesus had to die, which has to do with the subject of blood, the shedding of blood. He had to shed his blood. The first covenant was only inaugurated how? How was the first covenant inaugurated? When Moses made said, we're going to make this covenant, and he brought them together, what did they do? That's right. They slayed the animal and they sprinkled its bug. It was inaugurated or put into effect at the death of an animal, right? Before that, sprinkling of the blood, was it an inaugurated covenant? It was a spoken promise, but was the covenant cut? Remember, what's one of the things I took you to over and over in Hebrews 6 is the distinction between the oath of promise and the covenant itself, the, 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 commit, the, the cutting of the covenant. There are two distinctive things there. Mm, not sure. 
go ahead. Say it again. That Jesus' sacrifice fulfilled the law. Mm -hmm. Yes. But it also inaugurated the new covenant yes. as well. Yes, it did. I'm not sure I'm following the what the question is. Are you are you asking? Did something invalidate something else? Or no, I would just I typically think of Jesus and the Last Supper and saying, "This is my blood for mm -hmm. the new covenant." Yes, but it's still he's still fulfilling the law by his purpose. Okay, yes. Okay. Again, okay. Good. I think I'm going to follow you. I think. I hope I'm I hope I'm following you, Susan. Remember the opening of chapter uh 9 verse 1. He says the first covenant had regulations of divine worship. In other words, it had a system, right? That had to be exercised. One of the things he also said to us in verse 9 is what, about, what was that original covenant all about? What does it say to us in verse 9? What was it? In, go back and look in your verse 9 of chapter 9. Of chapter nine. <clears throat> and what was its purpose? <clears throat> there you go. It's a symbol of... For the present time. So now what have we learned through other studies that we understand about the purpose of the law? What was the law for? It, you know, Paul uh, presented a question and he said, so then is the law bad? And he said, may, may it never be, right? What was the purpose for the law itself anyway? It was a tutor to do what? To lead us to Christ. Therefore, According to verse 9, it says as it was a symbol for the present time. Did anybody happen to look up that word symbol just out of curiosity? <clears throat> Let me just read to you what a symbol is. A symbol is a comparison, a likeness, or an example. So if the old covenant in its totality was a symbol or a likeness or a comparison, and Jesus now in the new covenant, cutting the new covenant, he actually represents or was represented in the symbol by what? Almost everything. But yes, animals <laughs> and the shedding of that animal's blood. So now he in the, in the new, he fulfills the old because he has become the literal lamb of God. But technically, that's a whole separate thing, correct? S separate how? In that. Mm-hmm. Was just a picture of what was to come. Right. It was not specifically tied. That's exactly right. Okay. Okay. So exactly because in the in the old system they would kill animals, right? When you guys made a list on Jesus this week in your homework, you might want to pull out your list on Jesus real quick. It said in, in verse 9, 11 that Jesus ap appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, right? He was the Lamb of God. He was the one who shed the blood. According to this verse that we were looking at right here, he says in verse um, 12 that he didn't enter into 
the greater tabernacle with blood not his own, meaning not animal blood, but he entered with his own blood. And, and the distinction between the effect of the blood is huge, right? What was the effect of the blood under the old system? <clears throat> okay, the, all right. One of the things we know it was temporary. Why do we know it was temporary? Because <laughs> every year they had to go back over and over and over. <clears throat> also, what was the effect of the, the blood in regards to your relationship with God under that old system? Okay. Tell me in Scripture, what are some of the verses that show you that it really did not have... What do you think people wanted for the blood to do for them? They, they sent that high priest in to the inner court, into the Holy of Holies, to sprinkle the blood. What did they want? They wanted, they wanted to be absolved of sin. They wanted their sin to be atoned for. They wanted it to be a done deal. Was it? Never was. Tell me. Evaluating that system, if you lived under that system and you year by year sent your high priest in there and every year he came out and almost immediately you know you're beginning a new year and working towards the next year of when he will again go in, what does that tell you? What should you as a Jewish person in the days of the old tabernacle system, what should you conclude? Yeah, you are absolutely right, Sarah. We need, a, we need a better system than this. This system is not really working for us, is it? He said, this is very interesting. Go down to verse 8 of chapter 9. While the outer tap, tabernacle was still standing, the Holy Spirit was signifying what? That the way to, someone read that verse. Okay, so what is the outer tabernacle that's being spoken of? What is, show me or tell me up here, where is the outer tabernacle that they're speaking of? Basically, everything that's not in this inner holy of holies. All the rest of this system is the outer tabernacle, right? Not just this inner court, but all of this, because this all relates to one another. That's the interesting thing is they all are connected in a, in a way, but... As long as this veil remains, what was that signifying? And who was signifying it, according to that verse? The Holy Spirit was signifying it. That's interesting. What does that tell you about under the old system and the Holy Spirit and the people? Did the Holy Spirit in any way speak to the people in those days? Apparently so. There seems to be that. As a matter of fact, the word signifying, anybody look that word up? I always have to ask because I really want you guys to share these things. You know, I don't want to just be telling you, but I would really like you guys to have seen it. But if you look up that word signify, it means to, <clears throat> to render evident to the mind, to make known or to make it clear or to manifest to the sight. In other words, by seeing it, you can draw a conclusion. Okay, I walk in, there's this wall between me and the inner court. 
I cannot get into the inner court. And as long as year by year that, that wall remains there between me and the inner court, that's signifying something to me. Now, what's on the inner court? Holiness of God himself, because who dwells within the inner court? God himself. So if there's a wall, a curtain between you and me, what is that telling me year by year? I am still separated from God. Isn't that interesting that here it tells us that in the day when they worshiped through that tabernacle system, they understood that when they saw this wall, this veil separating them from the presence of the Shekinah glory, from the presence of God himself, they knew that something had not yet been atoned for. What had not actually been atoned for? Their sin. Even though the priest, year by year, went in, right? So tell me, what does it tell us about that? What, where is your list on... Um, the effect of the blood and of the, or the, you know, because we talked about the effect of Jesus. When Jesus entered with his own blood, what was the result? Well, that, right, that's, that's something that occurred. It wasn't in our text, but yes, that's something that did occur. But what was the effect of his blood upon sin? Once for all, and, so, and once for all, having obtained what for us? Eternal redemption. Oh, that word redemption, what does it mean to be redeemed? To be bought back. In other words, it's, it's a done deal there. Look, look at verse, um, how about 15, 915. What was, what was the work for there? Let's just make a list on this because I think this is really good. This is Jesus. The subject was Jesus. I know we have to do this. You know what's really interesting is, is they, again, they, they are still teaching. They don't want you to make lists with your class. They don't want you to write on the board. But I cannot do that because I think it's the most effective tool for you guys to literally see what you're maybe not connecting the dots on on your own time. And I just feel like for me, it's the best teaching tool for me personally. So I hope it, it works for you. I'm going to put on here the very first fact I listed was that a Jesus appeared, yes, as um, a high priest of the good things to go, of the good things to come okay and then we see he entered with his own blood jesus entered the true tabernacle with his own blood. Now, what I had to do was draw information from further, you know, other statements down the road in order to, to make the whole sentence make sense as it stands alone. But that's in 9.9. Um, whoops, 9.12, sorry. 9.12. In 9.11, we see that he, he, he came as our high priest. Contrasting with the Old Testament, the old system, the old priesthood, Jesus has appeared for us now as our great high priest of good things to come. He entered the true tabernacle, not with the blood of goats or of, of bulls, right, but with his own blood. And what resulted? Number one, redemption of transgressions. Uh-huh. 
Redemption of transgressions. Eternal. I'm going to add that in because I like that. All right, and that was in 9.15. Okay, so I want you to help me finish this list. What else did it? Without blemish, and what did it result in? Okay. Um, there we go. Where is that one at? Okay, it cleanses our conscience. Did the old covenant do that for you? Did the blood of the of bulls and goats cleanse your conscience? What does it mean to cleanse your conscience? In other words, you would have no further guilt. And if you have no further guilt, Sarah, what are you going to do come next year? If you have no guilt, are you going to make another sacrifice? No. But under the old system, did they? Because why? They still had guilt. Exactly. There was a need. So something that was not made available to him in the old was a clear conscience. In this new system that we're contrasting the old to the new is we see that Jesus with his blood, you can make that blood drop there, clay cleanses our conscience. And that's in 9, 15 or 16, 14, I'm sorry. Okay, he cleanses our conscience. What else did he, does he do? And you can go all the way into chapter 10 if you want to on some of this. We, because remember, you made a, a list to, on the totality of 9 and 10 about Jesus. And if one of your questions, since one of the subjects that she brought up and said Mark is the subject of blood, then the obvious question would be, if there's a contrast between the blood of the old and the blood of the new, then what's the distinction in its effect? Under the old, what did the old system blood do for us? And under the new, what did the new system blood do for us? Well, here we have redemption. That's a huge word. And in this one, it cleanses our conscience. Okay. Yeah, okay, so say it again. Yes. He, so he, to redeem us for the, exactly. Because under the first system, we never actually got redemption, even though there was an attempt made. So what was the purpose of the attempt? Symbolism. Again, we're back to, it was divine worship that was inaugurated for the purpose of being a symbol. The Holy Spirit was signifying to us through various things that there actually isn't yet uh, access to the Father. Your sins really haven't been forgiven under the old. Why? Because that, that veil that separated you from the inner court and into the Holy of Holies, where the Shekinah glory dwelt, was not open yet. It was not yet disclosed. So it's interesting to me, and I hope to you, that the fact that there was a presence of the Holy Spirit working in the hearts and the minds of the people in that day. And they got it. We keep thinking they didn't, but they did. Yeah. 
I don't think that was the purpose, though. You're right, Carol, that it's possible, and is it not even possible in Christianity today? How many people do we know today that think, oh, it's all by grace? Did Paul address that question also? What did he say about that? May it never be. Yes, Jesus died for your sins, and it's all by grace, and you do no works to attain your salvation. You are saved, Carol. Now, can you live any way you want? <laughs> you really, well, I like the fact that you say you won't want to because the reality is if you really have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, you won't want to. Because why? What have we learned about covenant also? The subject of covenant, which is distinctive between the promise, which is by grace that you're saved through faith, but in covenant, once the oath is made, what comes with an oath on your part? Responsibilities of covenant, entering into covenant. So on the one hand, you get saved freely without anything. But once you're saved freely and you enter into that covenant, now you have responsibilities to live up to the standard of what covenant is all about. That's why we're learning about the subject of covenant and the distinction in covenant between justification and sanctification. In justification, it's all by grace, but in sanctification, you have a responsibility to cooperate with the Spirit and to live to, to do what for your covenant partner? To honor him, to exalt his name, to live up to who he says he is and who you say that you believe he is. So that's why in this subject of covenant, I think it's such an important subject to study because I don't think Christians today understand the distinction between the justification and sanctification, and I don't think they understand the difference between the promise of covenant and the cutting of covenant. Hebrews chapter 6, somebody open that up. Let's read 13 to 17 one more time. We'll probably do it again next week too, but it's a good time to enter into it because we're talking about the subject of covenant. <clears throat> what we are trying to do is to discern the difference between these covenants and what covenant actually is for us, what it is that we are responsible in covenant for, right? Enter by faith through grace, he believed God, Abraham did, and it was reckoned him as righteousness. But then he proved himself by doing what? <clears throat> he proved that he loved God by what? By his obedience. Okay, read, somebody read 13 through 17, Hebrews 6. <clears throat> Wow. Okay, so what we see there is he made a promise and then he guaranteed it with an oath. Now, what he's saying there is an oath is not the promise in this particular statement. The oath is the cutting of covenant. The promise is the words of God where he says, I will do this. That's grace. 
That's you are saved by grace and not by works. But the cutting of the oath, if you enter into an oath with God, a covenant with God, if you have entered into the cutting of what he did for you through the blood, which was all done by grace, in the covenant then, knowing the subject of covenant, we have responsibility. There's a distinction there. I think it's lovely. Tell me that you did not just get excited when you understood that principle in our study so far. Have you ever actually grasped that yet? Have you fully grabbed hold of the fact there's a distinction between the promise, which is by grace, he believed. No covenant had been cut in verse 5 of Genesis 15 when Abraham said he believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. The cutting of covenant followed it. Now, they, they tend to merge with one another. They tend to become, I mean, if one happens, the other will follow, right? But they are distinct, correct? And which one came first? The salvation or the cutting of covenant? The salvation, the moment of salvation is when you believe God. And in that moment, God brings you into the covenant. He places you in Christ. It's that it's the same thing that you see in uh, Romans 5 where it says before you were in Adam, but you looked to the heavens, you believed the word of God, he reckoned it to you as righteousness, and he picked you up and he moved you over here and put you in Christ in covenant. But you started over here first believing. This is salvation by grace. Now he places you into a covenant with him, and now what are you to do? You are to walk in it. You are to honor him. You are to put on the new man and take off the old. Isn't that awesome? In darkness, he opened your eyes and he placed you into light. Two tables, perfect, dark and light. <laughs> Good visualization there. <laughs> okay, okay. So now let's let's get a couple more of these things because these this to me is one of the most important parts about what we learned about Jesus this week in studying this in relationship to this new covenant. This new covenant provides something that is very distinct from the old, and it and it and it's something that that affects our eternal life. He says we have we have received redemption because of this blood. Let me get a, my red marker here, <clears throat> and I'm going to do some visualization here, okay? Because of the blood of Jesus, we have now been redeemed, and we have, our conscience has been cleansed. Uh, tell me some other things that you see in there. <clears throat> I'll go to verse um, 12, maybe 10, 14, 12, I, I did say 12 already, Okay. What do you see there? In 12, he said he... What did he obtain for us? Eternal redemption. That's in uh, 10, 12, right? Well, it's also in 10. Yes, it is. He entered once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. 
in 10:12, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. That's in 9. And then in 10, he says, but having offered the sacrifice for sins for all times, he sat down. Oops, maybe I missed. Maybe I messed up on that. Oops, sorry. I thought I saw that in 12 also, or in 10 also. Nope. So it's in nine, which is why we already have, well, we didn't exactly write it down, though, so this is good. He obtained eternal redemption in 9.12. So in 9.12, it says he entered the true tabernacle with his own blood, and the result of that is that he, he obtained for us eternal redemption. That's what that blood did for us. That's distinct from the, from the old covenant. What else? You guys didn't make a list on this, huh? <clears throat> Mm-hmm. And I think that's one thing where it means it's a dead work, but it means an extra work is, I guess it is the justification of the sanctification, because your, your product in a good work, and you can't be more holy than it is, and so it's already there. This is, this is what is so exciting to me about studying doctrines. This subject on covenant is a doctrine, and if you understand systemically the qualities and the qualifiers of the doctrine of covenant, you can split the hairs between justification versus sanctification. But if you don't study covenant, you never will. And you'll always struggle with, well, why does it say I have to do this and I have to do this and I have to do this? Well, because it's the distinction between having been saved and now having entered, you have responsibilities in a covenant. Right. Well, even in here, it talked about Jesus doing the same thing with the Father. He came to do the Father's will. And so you and I, in like manner, if we're following the example of Jesus Christ, what should our heart's desire be? To do the will of God. Does God tell us what his will is for you and I? Oh, yeah. <laughs> We have a lot of scriptures to, that where God says, this is what I expect of you. One of the things that God says about what he desired and what he did not desire is told to us here in these two chapters. When it talks about the prophetic utterance of God concerning the coming of the Christ that he had promised, he doesn't lay all that down for us, but we, we know that background. But he says, um, in, go, go to 10 verse 4, and he talks about the contrast. In the old, in the, the old blood, what did the blood of bulls and goats do? cannot take away sin. Wow, is that a contrast from what we see over there? See, that was in verse um, 4, 10, 4. Was it 10, 4? Yes, 10, 4. I'm getting the two chapters mixed up. I'm sorry. It cannot <clears throat> take away sin, but in the new what? What about 10, 12? 
Yeah. He offered here one sacrifice for sin for all time. Wow. That's in 10.12. That's a, that's a perfect contrast here from what the old does in the new. And this old, you could go through your text again if you didn't do it. You can find tons of statements in here where it tells you what the old one does not do for you. Did anybody make a list like that by chance? Considering your, one of the words you should have marked was blood, there, you should have been able to kind of pick up on these things. How about in 9.9, 9, what about the, the gifts and the sacrifices of the old? That's right. And on 10.1. Very good. So you did do your contrast, Martha. You did a good job. But you did really good. That's excellent. And in 10, in 10, 11, he says, every priest stands daily under that old system, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, at, which can what? Never take away sins. So you can go to 10, 11. Again, never. They can never take away. Oops, it's over here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's an amazing, and just kind of comparing these two covenants too, what I do come to see is if you look at these time factors that were, she said, mark those references of time. <clears throat> Was there an understanding that the old was temporal? What did it say to us? Um, let's see here. I think it was um, in verse 10 of chapter 9. What was the old imposed for? What did they understand it was? Okay, it was... It related only to food and drink and various washings and regulations for what? For what? For the body. What does that tell you? Does, that have anything to, does the body have anything to do with your, with your conscience? So one is an external application versus an internal. One has to do with a religious system of regulations and divine worship, yes, they're, yes, they're God-inspired, yes, they were God-given, and they were required by God for his people to do, and yet what he says is they were for the body only, and they were only in place until when? Until a time of reformation, which tells you that they understood that it was a temporary thing. Why do we know that they knew that? What verses have we looked at already over and over? Yeah, but what about, what about the prophetic word of Ezekiel and of Jeremiah? What did they say over and over to the people of Israel about the old covenant versus something new that was coming? What did he tell And what is quoted in our text here in 9 and 10? God says what? I'm going to do what? 
That's right. First of all, I'm going to make a big change in how the laws are understood. It's instead of it being on stone, external, just like the ceremonies of the Old Testament were for the body, I'm going to now, in the new one, I'm going to make it an internal thing. I'm going to uh, uh, bring an effect of his blood in a way which will cleanse our conscience. That's an internal relationship with him. And I'm going to take my law, which was external, and now I'm going to place it in your heart. Right? <clears throat> Pardon? And he will put a new spirit in you. Did he tell Israel at any time in history that he was going to annul the old and bring in a new covenant? In that day, I will make a new covenant with Israel, not like the old, which they broke, right? But I will, and then he goes on to say all these things, I will remove their heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh, I will place my spirit in them, and I will cause them to walk in my precepts and my statutes. They will begin to obey my laws because now your conscience is cleared, my law is written on your heart, and now you're going to want to obey me. Right? That's the distinction between the old and the new. Wow, would you say it's better? Okay, so we see, let's go back here to this very quickly. I want to see if we can just kind of see how this all flows now because we know in, in 11 to 14, he's talking about a high priest um, that took, uh, I'm going to put on here animal because it's shorter, animal uh, blood, right? But Jesus, he took what? His own blood, exactly. And that's in 9.12. So that concludes that particular section there. And this was up here, I'm going to put verse 7. and It's also repeated again in 13, which follows in the next one. So now we're going to look at 15 to 23 to see this flow of thought. <clears throat> what is the emphasis in, in the verses 15 to 23 on? He says, now for this reason... He's the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has occurred. So if a death has occurred, what are we talking about if you're looking at the old system? It, sacrifice, right? So you could actually mark that word sacrifice if you wanted to. I have a little sheep on all mine. <laughs> okay. Since the death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Under the old system, what was the inheritance that they were looking for? The, basically the land, right? Their nation would now, because the nation part had been accomplished, now God was going to give them the land. Do you remember what Hebrews chapter 11 tells us about Abraham? When he, he says that while he was on this earth, he never actually possessed the land, right? But that he had his eye on what? on a heavenly city whose foundation and builder was God. So here we see again, the what, what is it saying that they may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance in this blood? What are you and I going to receive? That eternal heaven, that heavenly city, that, that eternal um, life right? There was another verse. I Let me see if I can find it real quick here because it was really good. Um, 
Where is it? Here it is. Hebrews 7, 18. <clears throat> no, that's not it. So sorry. That's another, that's another verse. I can't find it. It obviously was not important, or God wouldn't make me find it. Okay, so let's move on. 15 to 23, then we're looking at the subject of sacrifice, right? How does it compare to the old sacrifice in everything that's said in those verses? Huh? It is a better sacrifice. It really, it's so simple. It's a better blood, and therefore, it's a better sacrifice. So you can say, a better blood and sacrifice. So, seeing the flowing of thought here, he says he, he, has, he, has, uh, he has put into effect a new covenant. And he compares the earthly tabernacle with a greater tabernacle. So, I'm going to put a little symbol here that shows you this is a contrast. And then he says, in this new covenant, he, he, is, a high, he is a better blood and a better sacrifice for us. Contrasting there, he says the earthly cleansed with blood of what? Calves and goats. I mean, you guys do know this. It's calves and goats. It's animals, right? But the heavenly was cleansed with, with whose blood? Jesus' blood, a better blood. And then in 24 to 28, he makes the next point. The flow of thought on this is really awesome. In 24 to 28, what's the emphasis on? Talks about, in verse 24, Christ did what? Right, he entered into heaven himself. Now, when he entered in, how did he enter in? What was, he, what was the, the role that he was playing for us? The high priest. So in that, he was a better high priest. And he says, and he makes the comparison. And what was the comparison in those verses? What, what did the earthly priest do? And, and how often and why and what did, it, what did it accomplish? Right. So, and he's, and so the, the emphasis there or the point that he's making is that it had to be done over and over and over. Again, we're back to the point that as long as they keep having to go in there, they know that the access to God, the Father, has not been attained. Why? Because you don't get access until the sins are forgiven. And apparently what was taking place under that old system, they understood was a temporal thing. That it wasn't an actual atonement for sin, but it was rather a covering for sin. And there's a distinction in that. Atonement is totally different than a covering. The temporal gave them covering. Jesus' blood made atonement, total redemption. All right, so 24 to 28, a better high priest. What a contrast, the old to the new. He's a better high priest. They entered year by year, but Jesus, he manifested once to put away sin, and he put it away. Hebrews 10, what do we see in 10? What, what did you title your chapter 10? Did you give it a title when you looked at it, when you did your work on it? 
Well, it's very interesting because he says about the, the first verse in there, he says about the law, what? What does he tell us about the law? It was only a shadow of the good things to come. What does that tell you was going to happen then? What is the contrast to that? There's a good thing coming. And at the end of the chapter, he calls it a, a what? How does he, how does he um, define it at the end of all that he says about it there? Access to God under the old one, it was a shadow of good things to come. In the shadow, you got to see the priest go in year by year and do his work. And that there was, there was symbolically holiness represented to the people. And yet holiness and in its effect was not accomplished. Because it was not being brought in by what? what? The blood was what? It was not perfect. It was inferior. It was inadequate. Right? And so because of that, he says, but that was the shadow. But in the new one, how do you have access? In perfect? Yes. And so in verse 20, he concludes to us what? Say it again. There you go. Right. So it's a new covenant, and it is a new and living way. to God. Wow. That's, cha- that's the title for, the, for chapter 10. And so then, you st- again, you want to look at verses 1 to 4. The law was a shadow, right? We already observed that in that very first verse. It, basically, it was a shadow. By it, however, it became a reminder about their sins because every time they had to go back and do it again they were reminded they really weren't forgiven yet it hadn't really been redeemed it wasn't a permanent fix it was a temporal thing right very interesting i wish we had time to really thresh it all out but if you compare that to what Jesus says in 1 John 2 about if he is faithful and just, if we do what? If we confess. And so how often do you have to confess? Regularly, daily. And as a matter of fact, in that, that's exactly right for me, moment by moment sometimes. And so in the contrast here, we've got a system that allowed for daily confession But then there was one atonement one time a year, which was supposed to symbolically represent a fix, right? A final fix. But was it really a final fix? No. So what did the the depiction of that whole system do for the people? It should have done for the people. They should have looked at it and assessed it in their mind and came up to what conclusion? I have a sin problem. And the system that I'm, I'm operating under right now? is not the answer. There's got to be something better. However, he says it was a a symbolic thing. It was a picture of the good things to come. So what we now know, because we have our New Testament writings, is we understand that it was a tutor to lead us to Christ. And by virtue of it being a tutor, it meant that symbolically within the system, everything in the system pointed us to to understand that there was coming a permanent fix. 
which is why when you couple that with what else they knew, and they knew it, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, both promised a new covenant because they had broke this old one, that they were going to be given a new covenant, a better covenant. And by it, there would come, come a relationship with God because the difference was going to be what? Where was the law going to be now? On the heart. It was going to be internally, not something external, not just regulations for the body that you had to salute and check off the box. And, and how many of us, how, how often have you personally even fallen into the trap of checking boxes in your life? Yeah. We show up to church, we do the right thing, pretty soon we start being rather legalistic in the way that we are worshiping God. And then our conscience begins to rise. And at some point, we, we confess that to God. And what you brought up, um, Terry, is the difference between a final solution of justification versus the daily walk of sanctification and purifying. First John shows that distinction. If you're faithful and just, often people use that to lead people to Christ, but that's really talking to the believer about their daily washing, their relationship with God. In First John says, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins if you confess them. And in that one, it's talking about the splashing of water on you, not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not a baptism of, into visually it's not a baptism rather it's a splashing if you look up the keywords in there it's really cool if we ever do first john oh and how much easier do you think it is for us to walk in this new covenant versus the old I'm not, and I'm not saying that there weren't people in the old system that did a very good job, and they had the movement of the Holy Spirit upon them and in them to guide them. Moses obviously did. You know, we look back on Daniel. We look back on, you know, many of the, David, for instance, and they had God. Although they didn't walk perfectly, they had the presence of of God, the power of God, and you saw, particularly if you look through the Psalms, look at how many prayers that, that David lifted up to God, confessing his sin, acknowledging his need for God. Was he walking by the Spirit of God? Yeah, so there, were, there was available to people in that day, but what's interesting is they were living under a hope of something coming yet in the future. Where are we in the system of God's promises? It's done. It is a finished deal. God has paid the ultimate redemptive work for your sin. There is no longer a veil between you and I. At the close of chapter 10, how does he say? He says, I've inaugurated a new way to God, and therefore what? What does it say? Go to the end of chapter 10 and look at that. What does he encourage or exhort you to do now? Because he has done this for us. Uh-huh. And how are you to draw near? In what kind of attitude? With a sincere heart. And? Oh, I love that. 
full assurance of your faith. What was your faith put on? How did you enter into faith that entered you into this covenant? That Jesus and his, that God had promised to seed. We believe the seed is Jesus. And we also now believe he has come. And that is the assurance of your salvation. Believing that God promised it, believing that God did it. When Abraham was believing God, what was he believing? The seed that was yet to come. Had the seed arrived? But, but what was his faith in? The same thing, the word of God, that God, what God said was true. That what God said he would do, he would do. You and I, what are we walking by faith in as far as prophetically what God is or has not yet done? There you go. We are still looking for a day of his second coming. We are living in the light of the day when we are seeing the day approaching very quickly. We are seeing the signs and the, and the evidences of a lot of the things having been fulfilled, which gives us great hope and confidence, which gives us an ability to really stand firmly and say, I see it. But think about the people in the world around us. How many people have that same hope? What do, what do the unbelieving people who are still in darkness over here how do they view those promises of God about his coming again? Do they fear it in any way? What do they do when you start talking about the coming of Jesus and his ruling and reigning on, on this earth? What do they do? Yeah, they think it's a myth. They think you're nuts for believing it. And they'll scoff at you for believing it. They'll laugh at you because you have believed some for them, mythical fairy tale that is not an occurrence. Why do they not believe it? It all boils down to what, what they have not put their confidence and faith in. When Abraham, you and I looked at this, Martha, when we did our work yesterday, and all of you know of this also. When Abraham was called to come to a land that he had not yet seen or and did not yet possess, what what caused Abraham to obey God? What did God promise Abraham? Land, seed, nation. Did he have any of those things yet in his possession? But God promised them. Where was he when he was promised those things? He was all the way back here in the land of the Chaldeans, right? And God said, come on. I'm going to take you, and I'm going to show you, and I'm going to give you. And what did Abraham do? He went. How do we know he believed God? Because he went. Again, the, the linking together of believing and obedience. How do you know that someone actually believes they obey? Obey. 